You are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts, not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Good evening. Welcome Good evening. Season, welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lisa O'Brien, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Evans. This is episode two, State of Texas versus Robert Allen Frada. During the next two episodes, we'll talk about the 1990 murder for hire of Farrah Bakker Frada, a mother of three gunned down in a garage in Atascacita, Texas, in Harris County. In part one, we're looking at the case against Farrah's estranged husband, Robert Frada, who was executed on January 10th, 2023. We'll talk about the evidence against Frada and his initial conviction, as well as his 2009 retrial, direct appeals, and state and federal post-conviction claim. Finally, we'll talk about the last-minute claims made in an unsuccessful effort to stop his execution. And good afternoon, Kyle. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Lisa? Good afternoon. Pretty good. I've re- recovered from my food poisoning. Yeah, that's no fun. Having had it a couple of times, it is not fun. I think I miscooked some chicken. Oh, that's. So, I learned my lesson about going to very sketchy uh, <laughs> Chinese buffet once. So yeah, no, no good. Yeah, and before we get into the the case against Frada and the Frada facts. I do want to give everyone a little update. Some may or may not have heard. Hank Skinner, who was awaiting execution this September for the murders of Twyla Busby and her sons, Elwin Kaler and Randy Busby, has died due to complications from surgery. He passed away in a hospital in Galveston on Thursday, February 16, 2023. So his case has now ended. Any challenge to the resolution of his DNA claims is done and over. So that is... that's Saving the taxpayers a little bit of money. A little bit. Not much. Not much, uh, but a little. Because he has dragged his case out for 27 years, I think. Close to 28. Yeah, that sounds about right. And the murders, of course, were in 1993, so it was approaching 30 years from the date of the murders. So, yeah, that ends his case, although all of the news stories that I found act as though he was exonerated because he said he didn't do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was exonerated, but only in his own mind. Yeah, so, and the minds of his attorneys. Fair, it may be. (laughs) So, that is, yeah, that is the end of Skinner. Not that I don't think the outcome some people would have wanted to see, but at least he's not going to be released. Right, exactly. All right. The case we're looking at today is the murder for hire of Fair Frada. Now, I know that her family dropped Frada from her name. She's buried as Farrah Bacher, 
But for the purposes of this, because there was no divorce decree, there was no official change of her name, I'm going to continue to use the last name Frada. And I hope that if her family listens, that they understand it's it's a technicality. I respect the fact that she's buried as Farah Bakker, but for the courts and in the court systems, she remained Farah Frada. That um, makes sense. So uh, I don't mean any disrespect to her or her family. I know they don't want her associated with Frada, and I understand that. But again, if I'm going to follow the courts, I have to. Right. Yeah. You kind of got to be consistent with what their legal name is. Right. So Farah was born Farah Famida Bakker on August 5th, 1961 in Guilford, which is a borough in Surrey, England. I think Surrey is a county, although I could be wrong because I'm not real familiar with how, aside from London and Yorkshire, I'm not really familiar with how the rest of the country has <laughs> set up what their political subdivision is. No, are. I believe you're right. I think Surrey is a county near um, London, though. Pretty close. It's almost like an Exburg of London, I think, if I recall. Correct. So her parents were Lex Syed Bakker, who was born July 4th, 1933 in England, and he died February 7th, 2018. Her mother is Betty Bakker. Betty is still alive and still lives in Texas. She had a brother, Zane Bakker. She worked as a ticket agent for American Airlines. And prior to moving to the United States, she was working for an airline in London, I believe at Heathrow, although it could have been Gatwick. Those are the two major airports. She married Robert Frada, Robert Allen Frada on May 7th, 1983. She filed for divorce, alleging cruelty, in March of 1992. The marriage had three children, Bradley, born in 1986, Daniel, born in 1988, and Amber, born in 1990. Now, I will say this. I believe all three of the children now use the last name Bacher. And so they will be referred to as Bacher. Bacher. Another thing. Frada tried in interviews to cast shade at Farah's family and Farah. I think he claimed that they were Muslim, which I don't believe they were, given the fact that the children were all baptized in the Catholic Church. So they may have been Christian. Yeah, that would definitely be a no-no if they were even and um, it, it would have right? caused a lot of strain and, and more likely than not. Farah and her parents would not have attended any Catholic church services. Absolutely. But also, he tried to allege that they were Middle Eastern when, in fact, they are probably either of Indian descent or Pakistan. Lex and Betty may have been born and raised in what became Pakistan or may have been born or may have had family in the area of India that eventually became Pakistan. But again, Lex was born in England. Betty was probably born in England as well. So they were English, but yeah. they were of either Ind Indian or Pakistani descent. And if you've ever looked at India, there are multiple ethnic groups, Punjabi, which are the Sikhs. 
there are Gujarat, there's Hindi, there's Sindhi, there's, you know, different groups, but they all get along pretty well for the most part. So it's a very interesting thing. They weren't, like I said, they were not Middle Eastern though. They were Asian. Yeah, it's interesting. It says like the, I was just looking the most common places of that surname. Spain is right up there along with India too, all in the top 10. It's interesting. It does have origins in Spain. My basis is that I found a picture on Facebook and they were attending a, Lex and Betty were attending a family wedding and the costume appeared to be either Indian or Pakistan. Yeah, that makes sense, especially with her first and middle name. To me, yeah. So Farah died, a gunshot wound, shot twice in the head, and that was her cause of death. The perpetrator in this episode is Robert Allen Frada. He was born February 22nd, 1957 in New York. He has a sister who also lived in Texas. He married Farah on May 7th, 1983, and she filed for divorce in March of 92. He was, of course, the father of Bradley, Daniel, and Amber. He claimed to have worked security for American Airlines. That's where he met Farah or Farah. My apologies if I mispronounce her name as well. And then he also went to work as a public safety officer in Missouri City, Texas. Now, interestingly, he applied to the Houston Police Department and he ended up failing the psych evaluation for Houston PD. So that's why he wasn't that's hired. Never and I just, a good, yeah, that's a never a good sign, right? And he has been diagnosed with uh, narcissistic and antisocial personality disorders. He was a suspect in a June 28, 1994 attack on Farah in the home by a masked unknown intruder, but no evidence ever developed linking him to anybody or identifying the attacker. So nothing came of that. But when he was questioned by police, he bitched and moaned and groaned about that, saying that she was trying to accuse him of something that he believed that she did. And and I'm going to say this right out the outset. Frada was one delusional mf And he made a lot of wild delusional claims from day one. He even speculated that Farah was killed by somebody who was supposed to kill her to frame him or somebody set up by her father who accidentally killed her. I mean, he had just crazy, stupid, delusional theories coming out his mouth for 20-some-odd years. And they come into play during his attempts to represent himself. And, of course, again, the victim was Farah, Farah, his estranged wife, soon to be divorced. They had a divorce hearing coming up toward the end of November which we'll talk about a little bit more later. This is similar to the Glossop case in the sense that the thought is he didn't necessarily pull the trigger, but he set all the events in motion and had Correct. And that included telling people where Farah would be and when she'd be there and keeping in touch with the people during the night of November 9th, 1994. But again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And yeah, he was angry because at a deposition, Farah made some allegations that he felt would impact his career as a public safety officer, even though he had admitted these things to 
someone evaluating the couple for custody of the three children. So how he could be mad at Farah when he admitted this stuff to the right to the psychologist, I don't know. Again, well, he was delusional. Right. Exactly. And he was a narcissist and he was an antisocial personality. So he's very manipulative and very glib and very outwardly charming, but inside there's a monster. Right. Exactly. So the murder occurred on November 9th, 1994. But to give you a little background, Farah was born and raised in England with her brother Zane. In the early 1980s, her father Lex took a trip to Texas and fell in love with the people in the state. When her parents decided to move to the U.S., Farah joined them. She'd worked for an airline in England, so she took a job as a ticket agent with American Airlines, and that's where she met Frada. Frada and Farah were married on May 7, 1983. They welcomed son Bradley to the family in 1986. Bradley became a big brother when Daniel was born in 1988. Uh, In 1990, daughter Amber was born. While their family and their lives appeared to be perfect from the outside looking in, by March of 1992, the Frada's marriage crumbled and Farah filed for divorce, alleging cruelty as grounds for her petition. Over the next two years, Frada and Farah litigated their divorce and child custody issues. Frada frequently complained about paying support and bragging that he would get custody of their children and force Farah to pay him. He made threats to kill Farah and sought people to kill her for him. During a December 1993 deposition in the divorce proceedings, Farah disclosed that it was Frada's sexual practices that led to her decision to end their marriage. Frada also did not fare well in psychological evaluations used by the court to assist in his custody decisions. On June 28, 1994, a masked intruder entered the house and attacked Farah. Bradley, Daniel, and Amber were in the house and banged on the door of her bedroom, causing the intruder to abandon his attack and leave the house. Farah could not identify the attacker. She said it wasn't Bob, but he was suspected of arranging the attack. And this is a common thing to do because he didn't want the divorce. And so this is a common thing to do. He has somebody attack her thinking she'll believe she's safer if he moves back in the house. And she right, drops yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. It makes her think, oh, okay, I need it. As a November 1994 hearing date grew closer, Frada continued in his efforts to find someone to kill Farrah for him. Those efforts paid off when he enlisted Joseph Prystash, a fellow gym rat. Prystash recruited his neighbor, Howard Guidry, as the trigger man. On the night of November 9, 1994, Farah got her haircut while Frada took the children to dinner and attended a pre-catechism class at their church. Prystash equipped Gidry with a cell phone and dropped him off at Farah's house to wait for her to come home. Gidry hid in the children's playhouse in the backyard while he waited. And how did he know there was a playhouse in the backyard where he could hide? Frada told him. There were multiple calls and pages between Frada and Prystash and Prystash and Gidry during that evening. When Farah backed her car into the garage, she was ambushed and shot twice in the head by Gidry. Neighbors watched as Prystash picked Gidry up and drove away in a silver Nissan with a burned-out headlight. And this is a vehicle that Prystash replaced the headlight and then got rid of the vehicle. Frada arrived at the scene with his children shortly after Farah was flown to the hospital in Houston. Multiple witnesses who interacted with Frada described his demeanor as cold and uncaring. 
though he was a suspect, he was questioned and released by investigators. And he would claim that he was questioned for 15 hours and abused. This is also something that Price, Dash, and Guidry would claim, but it doesn't add up because when he was questioned on the 9th, he was released. He wasn't arrested. He wasn't charged. So how could they abuse him? Why would they abuse him and then not get incriminating information from him and arrest him right then and there? But anyway, again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Unknown to investigators at that time, Price Stash's girlfriend, Mary Gipp, had documented the serial number of the gun used to murder Farah and briefly saved the empty shell casings that Price Stash had taken out of the gun, which was given back to Guidry, who had instructions to dispose of the weapon in a body of water. Gip knew about Farrah's murder in advance, but chose not to stop it. She also did not contact police after the murder. The case went cold until March of 1995 when Guidry used the gun in a bank robbery and was arrested with it in his possession. Oh, wow. It was later determined to have been a weapon purchased by Frada. Sadly, Farrah had taken the gun from Frada and given it to her father for safekeeping. Unaware of Frada's plans to kill his daughter, Lex returned the gun to Frada during the summer of 1994 prior to the murder. Guidry soon confessed, leading police to Prystash, Gip, and Frada. Prystash confessed his role, and Gip eventually chose to cooperate, connecting many of the dots. True to form, she only did so under the threat of criminal charges <laughs> and the grant of immunity prior to her grand jury testimony. In addition to Gipp's testimony about statements made to her by Prystash and Guidry, there were phone records that eventually re- revealed the calls made on the night of Fowler's murder connecting Frada, Prystash, and Guidry to one another. Many of these calls were made by Frada using a phone at the church where his son was in pre-catechism class on the night his mother was murdered. So that gives He's got to be idea. really sick. Yeah. Of what, I mean, this guy is clearly, as and, you know, just... According to testimony from people at the church, Frada acted like it was his fucking phone. Right. You know, he got a page. He went in the office. He picked up the phone. He returned the page. Someone was like, you can't use that phone. And he put his finger up like uh, just a minute. Yeah, he sounds like a winner. And so he was he was in contact with Prystash. Prystash was in contact with Guidry. The cell phone belonged to Mary Gipp. So they were able to get those records. So, I mean, they did develop a very strong case against Frada, even after Guidry and Prystash chose to allege that they too were abused during questioning and that their confessions were coerced. Frada was arrested in March of 1995 by the Harris County Sheriff's Office. He was initially charged with solicitation of capital murder, which was dismissed. He was charged with capital murder on June 28, 1995, but that charge was dismissed. And then he was ultimately indicted on January 10th, 1996 for capital murder. Uh, I think it was murder for remuneration. The case was in the 230th District Court in Harris County, Texas. Counsel for the state was Kelly Siegler and Casey O'Brien. Frada was represented by Michael Charlton and John Ackerman. Voidir in his case was went from March 27, 1996 to April 3, 1996. The guilt innocence phase of his trial, the docket entries are kind of not very 
detailed. So his guilt and innocence stage started on April 9th, 1996. It may have gone as far as April 22nd, 1996, but it's not clear. And there are no images to see when the jury verdict came in on guilt and innocence or any of those things. Uh, He was found guilty. And then there was a penalty phase, which was probably either just April 23rd, 1996, or it may have been a few days before that. And he was formally sentenced to death on April 23rd, 1996, which was the jury's sentencing verdict. He was represented on his initial direct appeal by Jake Parrott. The main challenge, he did have about 60 points of error, but the main challenge was the admission of the confessions of Gidry and Prystash through Detective Billingsley at his trial and the admission of Prystash's statements through Mary Gipp, who testified at his trial. And hey, Lisa, sorry to go back. I don't, didn't the jury only take, like, weren't they out like less than an hour? I mean, it was a really quick verdict, right? I'm, I'm not sure as far as that goes, because again, there are no, the docket entries aren't clear, but I believe that they deliberated and there are no image files. So I can't tell when they went out to begin deliberations when the jury charge was issued or filed or any of those things. So it may have been, you may also be thinking about his retrial in 2009. Got it. Because he was tried. His conviction and sentence were initially affirmed by the Court of Criminal Appeals on February 17th, 1999, but that opinion was withdrawn on June 30th, 1999 and substituted with a new unpublished opinion. Again, it examined the 64 points of error raised from the first trial, which it's a very lengthy opinion and it's not available in a Word document. So I didn't try to document all 64 points of error. Ultimately, though, the Court of Criminal Appeals found that there was no confrontation clause violation in the admission of Gibbs' testimony or Gidry and Prystash's statements to Billingsley because their admission was under hearsay exception as statements against interest, and the statements did not name or implicate Frada. They merely implicated Gidry and or Prystash. You know, Gidry's statements were his admissions of guilt. Prystash's statements were his admissions of guilt. Right. Uh, Gibbs' testimony about Prystash's statements were, you know, that they did carry out the murder, that Pharaoh was dead, that Pharaoh was going to be killed, those things. Now, again, the Court of Criminal Appeals did not find a confrontation clause violation. A writ was filed at the United States Supreme Court on December 1st, 1999. That was denied on March 20th, 2000, meaning the U.S. Supreme Court did not find allegations of confrontation clause violations to have any merit. So they declined to review uh, Frada's conviction. Frada went on to his first state post-conviction claims. Uh, He had a writ of mandamus. I'm not clear on what that was. It was filed on July 16, 1996. It was eventually denied on August 28, 2002. But it's not clear and there are no actual pleadings available to know what 
it was about. Then he filed a state post-conviction writ on July 9, 2004, and he had eight allegations challenging his conviction and sentence. Again, no documents are available, so I don't know what that was about. Uh, It was denied with written order or opinion on September 22, 2004, but the Court of Criminal Appeals did not enumerate what the specific allegations were. Although I'm guessing the Confrontation Clause violations were a big part of the allegations. Yeah, that Uh, makes sense. Again, Frada filed a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was discussed at a conference held on June 2nd, 2005. And on June 6, 2005, an order was issued denying his petition. So again, the U.S. Supreme Court did not choose to review these Confrontation Clause violations alleged by Frada or the Court of Criminal Appeals resolution of the allegations which will come in later. A petition for rehearing was filed on June 15, 2005. It was also distributed for a conference on July 28, 2005, and rehearing was eventually denied on August 22, 2005. So again, the allegations were taken pretty seriously and were given due consideration and due process. On October 18, 2004, while that was pending at the U.S. Supreme Court, or while, you know, the review was pending at the U.S. Supreme Court, Frada filed a motion to appoint counsel in the federal court. James Gregory Riding and Philip Harlan Hilder were eventually appointed. The court was the United States District Court, Southern District of Texas, and the judge was the Honorable Melinda Harmon. Um, After about three years of post-conviction litigation in federal court, including a petition for writ of habeas corpus and response and motion for summary judgment. The court issued a decision on September 28, 2007, and basically the court found petitioner a pro se state prison inmate incarcerated under a capital conviction and death sentence filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus against respondent warden who filed a motion for summary judgment. Inter alia, the inmate argued that a Sixth Amendment confrontation rights were violated by admission of inculpatory hearsay testimony from two co-defendants, the shooter and the getaway driver. The court found that the inmate was convicted of hiring two co-defendants to kill his wife based in part on their hearsay statements, which were introduced through the testimony of an interrogating police officer and one co-defendant's girlfriend. Although their confessions were redacted to avoid any mention of defendant, both were challenged as involuntary based on police misconduct. The codet defendants were unavailable to testify because they invoked their Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. The court held that state appeals and state habeas court's findings that the co-defendants' hearsay statements were admissible were contrary to and an unreasonable application of federal law interpreting the Confrontation Clause under Ohio v. Roberts. The state courts incorrectly relied upon corroborating evidence to find the co-defendant's statements reliable and erred by failing to consider the unredacted versions of the confessions in assessing reliability. The reliability of the hearsay related by the girlfriend was suspect as she was a putative accomplice. 
None of the errors were harmless, absent the hearsay evidence a murder for hire was not proved under Texas Penal Code Annotated 19.03A3. The outcome, the court granted in part and denied in part the warden's motion for summary judgment. The court issued a provisional writ of habeas corpus on the inmate's confrontation clause claims, but found that the remainder of his claims did not qualify for habeas relief and thus did not merit a certificate of appealability under 28 U.S.C. 2253 C2. Uh, The case, I guess, the warden filed an appeal at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals which affirmed the relief granted on July 22nd, 2008, and denied so, Frada's request for an additional certificate of appealability on the other issues that he raised. So there were cross so, appeals. All right. So the short story is they granted his motion because of the hearsay. Correct. And they found that the court's resolution. Uh, the Texas court's resolution of those issues on direct appeal as well as state post-conviction were unreasonable. And that's because the police were testifying to the, to the, the police were it, testifying it, to the, it, the um, it, confession, it was, not the actual confessors. Correct. And it was primarily found, um, the, the primary reason that the U.S. district judge found the statements not to be reliable was because both Prystash and Gidry claimed that they were coerced to confess during their interrogations in yeah, March of, of 1995. Everybody's always coerced. And so that was where the, basically the district court found that the reliability determinations of the state courts were not correct, were not reasonable. I mean, yeah, I mean, just as an aside to chase the rabbit of the coerced confession, I have never been able to wrap my head around you're going to face the death penalty or spend the rest of your life in prison if you confess. But it was coerced because I mean what's worse like how could they how could one be coerced to confess in a manner that would spend their life in prison or or lead them to the death penalty. It's like and, like, right. like what else like what else are the cops threatening to to coerce to confess? Well they'll Gidry and Prystash both alleged they were beaten, and 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 Frada adopted that BS and alleged he was beaten too. Fair, but still, I mean, I, I would take a beating versus the death. Even though he didn't make any, he he never made any inculpatory statements in any of his police interviews, but he claims right. he was beaten. And this is one of those things. It's like the world according to Frada, exactly. and we'll get well, into that a little bit is, more. Right? When we talk about his pro se efforts, I don't think he, his initial claims, he didn't do as much pro se or attempt to do as much pro se as he would later. But that was, you know, basically, again, and it wasn't that the U.S. District Court did not find any misconduct or any, you know, any wrong done by prosecutors or the judge in the original trial. Again, she merely found that the Texas court's findings on the confrontation clause allegations were not reasonable in light of the Sixth Amendment and this Ohio case, which was at the time the case on evaluating hearsay statements and their admissibility. Ironically, it was replaced 
<laughs> with a later Supreme Court case, which then was used in evaluating the claims Frada made related to a second trial. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. But yeah, it was basically the, the federal court didn't find the Texas courts to have been reasonable. Now, again, we've got two petitions to the U.S. Supreme Court, which did not choose to review. So one could argue that even the U.S. Supreme Court at that time didn't believe that Frada's allegations had any merit because they declined the writs. Yeah, exactly. And that's how sometimes how criminal litigation works. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. He lost on all the other claims he made, but he did win on the confrontation clause. Right. So Frada went back to the 230th District Court in Harris County for his retrial. Counsel for the state by then was Mia Magnus, Denise Bradley, and Roe Wilson. He was represented by appointed counsel Randolph McDonald and Vivian R. King. Voir dire for his second jury trial began on March 31st and extended through April 16th. The guilt-innocence phase of his trial began on April 20th, 2009, and concluded on May 15th, 2009, at which time he was found guilty, and that could be the one hour. Then the penalty phase went from May 26th, 2009 to June 1st, 2009, and unfortunately for Frada, his personality disorder led to a recording of him speaking to a woman named Betsy about some photographs that she had sent him. Basically what Betsy was doing, Betsy was emailing Vivian King's office. Her secretary was printing those emails and attachments and then putting them in an envelope for Vivian King to give to Frada. And that was under the guise of attorney-client material. Mm. And unfortunately, one of those envelopes had illicit pictures that Frada was not permitted to possess illicit in the jail. pictures of? Of this woman, Betsy. Okay. Uh, That's what and I the was phone guessing. calls, the recorded phone calls, you know, demonstrated his manipulation of Betsy, again, his personality and his basically cold, calculating demeanor. One of the things, like, I think that the victim said during the divorce proceedings was sort of accused him of some sexual deviancy. I don't know exactly yes. what that means, and, but. And yes, that was, that was an aspect. And he also bordered on white supremacy. Which is odd considering he married probably a Muslim lady from England. Well, no, she wasn't. I don't think they were Muslim. Or, or at least, or, sorry. I, I, yeah, I misspoke. Sorry. She was and, Indian. Indian. She wasn't white. She was brown. You know, yeah, she, she, was brown. she was brown. But no, he started bored. And the woman's name was Gomez. So but he, <laughs> he's a self-hating white supremacist. How basically stupid Frada could be. Yeah. And delusional. He yeah, could he's, be. he's not going to be the, the president of the Harris County Mensa chapter. No, he will not. He, he did not. Uh, and he did not. Uh, he was not president of the Mensa chapter in the Polonsky unit either. <laughs> no. Um, so, but he was he was delusional. I mean he he had a website and he posted his handwritten evaluations of the statements made by Prostash and Gidry and called them affidavits. 
and held them out as affidavits proving <laughs> that he was not involved in Farah's murder at all. It was some other guy or it was her father. He had accused Farah and her father of stealing money that he had no right to. Farah and the children were apparently involved in some sort of car accident. And there was a settlement of their claims of over $100,000. And it was put into an account in trust for the children. So it may have been for the kids' claims. It's not real clear. I mean, I don't um, want to be flippant, but the guy, I mean, he gave the murderer his own gun. Yeah. Correct. I mean, <laughs> this guy's not playing with a full set of cards. Mm -hmm. Because the, the gun was supposed to be thrown away. I mean, it's weird. He goes through all this, you know, he, he gets his gym guy who hires another guy. I mean, they have like, but he's like, hey, just, just use my gun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he created, like all manipulative people, you know, he was good at, at creating and evolving a story fit with the facts as he knew them so that it would sound kind of reasonable unless you really took it apart and looked at it closely but in passing right. and if you know anybody who has paramount plus watch criminal minds evolution it's 10 episodes it deals with a kind of uber serial killer who's nicknamed Sicarius. And the last couple episodes, the manipulation of this serial killer of his wife and family comes into play. And it really, it shows you how, you know, different stories and how the stories evolve to try and convince the listener that, you know, they're the reasonable person and everybody on the outside is out to get them. Well, I have so, to check that out. I was just listening to another show and talked about what how good it was. That it was it was a little bit different than the original, but it was actually really good. Well, what shocked me is that because it's on Paramount Plus and it's streaming, it's not on network TV. <laughs> they're swearing. That's, it's funny that the, the other show I listened to said the same thing. It's so jarring after Criminal Minds was on <laughs> what like ten years. Yeah. It's like. So odd to see these characters suddenly swearing like sailors after 10 years of never hearing a bad word. Uh-huh. Exactly. It The first time an F-bomb got dropped by one of the main characters was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I I, I'm, I'm about exhausted of the Yellowstone prequels, so I think I'll uh, have to <laughs> check out the uh, Criminal Minds next. Yeah, it, it was really good. I mean, I ended up binging it over two weekends. Uh, because it was that good. And I was poo-pooing it when it first came out. I was like, I'm not watching that. I watched that show for 10 years. I lost all, I initially lost any, um, any loyalty to the show when they said the West Memphis three were innocent. Oh, was that on the show? I didn't know. It was on the show. Yeah. It was right before Thomas Gibson was cast out because of his altercation with a director or production. Uh, person okay I'm, i did not make it that far yeah but i but i ended up going back to it i like didn't watch it for a season and then it was on a and e and so i started watching it again 
And I just, when that particular episode played again on A&E, I just didn't watch it. Pretended it didn't happen. It was like Dallas in the nightmare. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Where Bobby didn't really die. Right, exactly. Fair enough. So, um, all right. So then uh, Prada had a second direct appeal and he was represented by an attorney named Alan C. Isbell. He also represented himself pro se. This is where his pro se effort ramped up. He had uh, about 32 points of error. And basically, I'm just going to run through them real quick. Points of error one through 10 dealt with Gibbs' testimony recounting Price Stash's statements to her claiming they were admitted in violation of the Confrontation Clause under Crawford versus Washington, which replaced Ohio versus Roberts in evaluating admission of hearsay testimony. Specifically, Frada complained that the trial court erred by ruling that statements were non-testimonial, asserting that statements were not the sort of spontaneous, casual statements that are properly determined to be non-testimonial. The specific statements were that the murder was to happen on Wednesday night, that Price Dash was the driver, that Price Dash was the middleman who was to find someone to kill Farah, Price Dash was going to the President and First Lady Health Club, Price Dash was going to the health club to meet Bob, that they killed Frada, that Price Dash knew Farah was dead because he saw her body in her garage, that he gave Gidry the murder weapon to dispose of, that Gidry threw the murder weapon into a body of water, that Price Dash was to get a Jeep for his part in the offense. Points of error 11 through 20 dealt with the 10 statements claiming they were admitted in violation of Rule 803 of the Texas Rule of Evidence, asserting that statements 4, 5, and 9 were non-self-inculpatory, that 2 and 3 were blame-shifting, that he didn't specifically challenge the self-inculpatory character of statements 1, 6, 7, 8, and 10, but he asserted that the Fifth Circuit had already determined that all 10 statements did not possess particularized guarantees of trustworthiness based on their review of the grant of habeas relief. In points of error 21 and 22, he challenged the admission at the guilt phase of evidence of his sexually deviant preferences and behaviors, which I will not go into because there's this gross. It was error because such evidence was not relevant to his guilt and was more prejudicial than probative. Although I will say that he wanted an open marriage and he wanted Far to have sex with other men, which she didn't want to do because she was married. You know, she believed in the sanctity of marriage. But that was his, that was his big weird hang up mm-hmm. as wanting. Yes. Her to, he wanted to like whore her out basically. Correct. And he wanted to watch. So he was a sick little, little pup. Yeah. He's got a lot going on mentally. Yeah. So points of error 23 through 26 alleged that a conflict of interest arose between him and his second chair counsel, Vivian King during the punishment phase, and that trial court violated his right to effective assistance of counsel at the punishment phase by failing to obtain a waiver of conflict-free representation after a conflict of interest arose, an unwaivable per se conflict of interest arose between Appellant and King. This is because he had somebody smuggling in illicit materials through King's office, even though King had no knowledge and the secretary had no knowledge. Because, I mean, I've done this. I've been told, print this out, but don't look at it. So just put it on the printer, let it go, and then don't look at it, bring it to me. Because it was allegedly attorney-client privilege, attorney-client confidential. So the secretary can't look at it. And King didn't look at it. 
which was probably a bad idea given who she was dealing with. But again, if she had looked at things and said, I can't give this to you, then that would have been a problem. Appellant was denied his constitutional right to the effective assistance of counsel because an actual conflict of interest caused a lapse in representation, namely the preparation and presentation of closing argument at the punishment phase and that the trial court erred by failing to grant a mistrial. So again, this happened because Prada was having a third party send illicit material through his attorney, which was being given to him by his attorney, and suddenly it's their fault, not his. And, you know, he's been inside long enough to know what he can and cannot have. And so he's trying to get around the system and he finds a way around. Yeah, the he's always he gets got caught. A, he's always running a hustle, it seems like. Yeah. Point of error 27, the trial court erroneously granted the state's challenge for cause to prospective juror in violation of Wainwright versus Ritt. And this was somebody who said he couldn't sentence fraud to death. Points of error 28, 29, the omission of evidence of his sexual perversions and fantasies at the punishment phase was erroneous because such evidence was not relevant to special issues and was more prejudicial and probative. Specifically, he complains of the testimony of two acquaintances, Helen Blackpace and Jerry Parker. He also complains of the recordings of his telephone conversations with Gomez. Points of error 30 and 31 challenge the legal and factual sufficiency of the evidence to support the jury's finding of future dangerous and point of error 32 challenged the capital murder sentencing scheme as unconstitutional because the court does not conduct a meaningful appellate review of the special issues that are determinative of the death penalty. Friday referred to the court's refusal to conduct a factual sufficiency analysis of the future dangerousness question and conduct review of the mitigation question, but acknowledged that the Court of Criminal Appeals has rejected similar claims. The decision was issued on October 5th, 2011, basically finding following a new trial in May of 2009, appellant was again convicted of capital murder based on the jury's answers to special issues on June 1st, 2009. The trial court again sentenced the appellant to death. Direct appeal to this court was mandatory. After reviewing appellant's 32 points of error, we find them to be without merit. And they remarked that throughout these proceedings, appellant has filed pro se pleadings and letters in an attempt to supplement his attorney's efforts. Appellant is not entitled to hybrid representation, see Chenette versus State. Thus, we do not address his pro se points. Consequently, the Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the trial court's judgment and sentence of death. Brought a filed a pro se request for rehearing on November 3rd, 2011. That was denied on November 21st, 2011, with Judge Cochran not participating. On February 1st, 2012, he filed an application for extension of time with the U.S. Supreme Court under docket number 11A744. That was denied, and he filed his writ to the U.S. Supreme Court under docket number 11 9292 on February 14th, 2012. The order denying that petition was entered by the Supreme Court on June 4th, 2012, and his conviction and sentence became final on that date. Then he moved back to state court for his state post-conviction, dealing with the second trial. He filed a writ of mandamus on December 5th, 2012, he was being represented by counsel Patrick McCann and Carmen Rowe. 
I don't know what happened with the writ of mandamus. It's not clear. That was under WR-31536-03 on January 2nd, 2014, writ WR-31536-04 was filed, and that was a state post-conviction writ under 1171. He alleged ineffective assistance of trial counsel at punishment due to conflict of interest, a structural conflict of interest, state misconduct, and violation of due process. And that was the recordings and the state's notification to his attorneys of their intent to use the recordings. He also alleged ineffective assistance of trial counsel at the punishment phase for failure to present mitigating testimony from a cousin regarding multiple deaths in his family, of family members, and a family history of mental illness, and challenged to the grand jury key man system alleging it was discriminatory. He was allowed to represent himself on this writ as pro se, so apparently his request to, but he couldn't have counsel also representing him because they're not going to be paid by the the indigent defense system if he's going to represent himself. And that's what he's trying to get done. He's trying to have attorneys paid for by the system, but to have put his own two cents in, basically. Right. you know, if they don't want to, if they don't want to argue that Lex arranged for Far to be murdered, even though he says that's what happened, then you know he wants to be able to file supplemental pleadings that make those allegations and claims, even though there's not a damn bit of proof of them. No, that uh, and that sense. demonstrates what a really callous, cold, calculating individual he is. He had multiple different people, including. Harris County Sheriff's investigators who throughout the years he accused them of being involved in the murder. He accused Farah of arranging her own murder. Or it was supposed to be an attack that went too far because she was trying to get an upper hand in the divorce. Even though, again, there's not a shred of evidence supporting any of that shit. Yeah. On December 18, 2013, the trial court entered findings of fact and conclusions of law recommending that relief be denied. And on February 8, 2014, the Court of Criminal Appeals entered an order denying relief. Frada filed a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court under docket number 14-5037 on May 5, 2014. On October 14, 2014, that petition was denied. He also filed a petition for rehearing on November 5, 2014. That was a conference on December 12, 2014, but was ultimately denied on December 15. Then he went back to federal court for another round of federal post-conviction. The action started under Judge Harmon. He was represented by James Gregory Riding, Philip Harlan Hilder, who was terminated on July 29, 2015. Maureen Scott Franco, the federal public defender, enrolled. Joshua Aaron Freeman, also, I believe, of the federal public defender, enrolled. Missy Ann Franklin enrolled and then was withdrawn on August 4th, 2016. More likely than not, because they weren't going to do what Frada wanted them to do. Stephen E. Randall, Timothy Patrick Gokowski also enrolled. Frada tried to uh, participate pro se. And when I was going through the docket entries, he apparently had multiple people on the outside who were going to go on to PACER and file stuff for him. 
because multiple different names appear as filing things on behalf of Frada Pro Se. His petition for writ of habeas corpus was filed on February 12, 2015. He filed an amended petition on May 27, 2016. And basically, the court did not accept any of his pro se filings. They were all stricken. They were ignored. Nothing happened. So this is only the claims raised by his counsel. They alleged insufficient evidence supported Frada's capital conviction. Trial court constructively amended the indictment through the jury instructions that new evidence demonstrated a fundamental miscarriage of justice, allowing full federal review of all Frada's claims. Frada was actually innocent of capital murder and the state suppressed evidence of his innocence. The trial counsel provided ineffective representation by failing to object to the law of parties trial charge. Trial counsel provided ineffective assistance by not properly objecting to testimony about Guidry. Trial counsel should have done more to prevent Prystash's statements to Gip from coming in before the jury. Trial counsel failed to investigate the circumstance surrounding Gip's interactions with police. Trial counsel should have impeached Gip with prior inconsistent statements that they did not sufficiently impeach Prystash's credibility, that trial counsel did not do enough to exclude or impeach testimony by other witnesses. Trial counsel did not act zealously enough in trying to exclude testimony about Frada's deviant sexual desires. Trial counsel should have objected to a hypothetical the state used during voir dire of one prospective juror. That trial counsel should have objected to allegedly false testimony. Trial counsel did not make the correct objections to the state's repeated interjection of facts outside the record during summation. The cumulative prejudicial effect of the ineffectiveness claims violated the Constitution that state misconduct caused the conflict of interest between Frada and one of his attorneys. An actual conflict of interest developed between Frada and one defense attorney. Trial counsel ineffectively investigated, prepared, and presented witnesses during the punishment phase of trial. Now, I want to comment on one of the things. The Harris County docket shows three volumes of capital murder motions filed on behalf of Frada by his trial attorneys. It is three volumes, and it is a, I mean, just multiple motions challenging everything. And they amended some of the motions. They amended motions challenging Gibbs' testimony. So they're just filing paperwork. They're just filing paperwork just to file paperwork, it feels like. I mean, I can't. Well, no, I mean, they are filing a lot of paperwork, raising all these issues. And the problem is, is that. Just because you file it doesn't mean the court has to grant it. Exactly. So it's not like they weren't trying to uh, prevent this. It's the court, the judge that calls the balls and the strikes. Right. And it's the judge that ultimately determines. And I believe due to the Crawford decision, the evaluation of Gipp's testimony and statements she was repeating from price stash had changed, you know, that was going to hamper his attorney's abilities to keep the statements out, even though they had already, you know, won once on confrontation grounds. So on August 8th, 2016, the court did enter its first order warning Frada that pro se filings would be stricken. There was a motion for summary judgment filed by the warden or the state on December 22nd, 2016. Then on 
September 18, 2017, the judge issued her memorandum in order. She found that on November 9th, 1994, Farah Frada was shot to death as she got out of her car. The police suspected the involvement of her husband, Robert Frada, with whom she was engaged in a bitter divorce. It took months, however, to connect Frada to the offense through the gunman, Howard Guidry, and the getaway driver, Joseph Prystash. All three men were eventually convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. For over two decades, the three men have engaged in numerous challenges to their convictions and death sentences. Constitutional error resulted in federal habeas relief being granted to Frada and Guidry. Both men were retried and both are now again on death row. Frada has sought state appellate and post-conviction remedies relating to a second capital conviction and death sentence. Respondent Lori Davis has moved for summary judgment. Having reviewed the record pleadings and the law and giving special consideration to the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, the court finds that Frada has not shown an entitlement to federal habeas relief. The court, therefore, will grant respondents motion for summary judgment, deny Frada's petition, and dismiss the case. The court will not certify any issue for consideration by the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Frada filed a notice of appeal on October 13, 2017. May 1, 2018, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that petitioner was not entitled to a COA because Texas law regarding hybrid representation was an independent and adequate state ground and such that petitioner procedurally defaulted his insufficiency and constructive amendment claims and petitioner could not overcome default with a showing of actual innocence. So his motion for a COA was denied. Frada went directly to the U.S. Supreme Court and filed an application for extension of time under 18A-232 on August 31st, 2018, which was granted. He also filed his writ at 18-6298, and that was filed on August 29, 2018. He was challenging the failure to grant hybrid representation. That petition was denied on January 7, 2019. A petition for rehearing was filed on January 31, 2019. A conference was held on February 22, 2019, and rehearing was denied on February 25th. Then Frada went back to the district court and filed an advisory and a letter basically seeking Rule 60B relief from the memorandum in order from September 2018. Uh, that was on March 13, 2019. He filed a motion to rule on Rule 60B motion on April 25, 2019. An order was entered by the court on May 30th, 2019, denying the pro se filings made by Frada and striking them without prejudice to filing by counsel. And then at some point, Judge Andrew S. Hannon took over that division or that district court, and he became the judge. On February 13th, 2020, an order was filed by Judge Hannon striking various pro se filings made by Frada. A notice of appeal was filed on February 27, 2020, which was dismissed on March 18, 2020, with an unopposed motion to dismiss filed by Frada. Frada filed a pro se motion for hybrid acceptance on April 20, 2020. 
that was stricken on June 4th, 2020. His counsel filed an opposed motion for relief from judgment on October 12th, 2020. An order was entered on October 13th, 2020, denying the pro se motion to dismiss fraud as attorneys. An opposition to the motion for relief from judgment was filed by the warden on November 12th, 2020. An order was entered on January 22nd, 2021, denying Frada's motion for relief, and the court denied requests to certify any issue for consideration by the Fifth Circuit. Frada filed a pro se motion for relief from that order on February 12th, 2021. His counsel also filed a notice of appeal on February 19th. An order was entered on February 23rd, 2021, saying that the court had cautioned Frada that all pro se filings will be stricken from the record. The court directs the clerk to strike Frada's most recent pro se filings. On the 5th of January, 2022, the Fifth Circuit held that the appellate court declined to grant permission to appeal from a district court ruling treating a federal Rule 60B motion as a successive petition because the district court's procedural ruling in denying the habeas petition did not preclude a merit determination. Although the court found that the Texas rule against hybrid representation presented independent and adequate state procedural grounds to bar federal review of his claims, it still reviewed and rejected both sufficiency and jury charge claims on the merits. So Frada's motion was denied. He filed an application for extension under 21A752 on May 17, 2022. His extension of time was granted by order on May 23, 2022. He filed his writ under docket number 22-94 on July 28, 2022. And again, he's challenging the hybrid representation grounds to deny his writ. He also filed in December because the writ had not been acted on by December 2022. On the 16th, he filed an application for stay of execution related to that docket. That writ was conferenced on January 6, 2023, and the petition was denied on January 9, 2023. On January 9, a stay of execution was also denied. Prada also, while he was litigating in federal court, he was also litigating in state court. And so on May 17, 2021, he filed an 1171 post-conviction writ under WR-31536-05, it was, he was challenging the legal sufficiency of the evidence to support his conviction for capital murder. He also appeared to argue that the guilt phase jury charge improperly authorized the jury to convict him as a principal or a party. That was dismissed on June 30th, 2021. He filed a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court under 21-6434 on September 28, 2021, challenging the alleged impermissible amendment of his jury charge. That was conferenced on April 1st, 2022, and the writ was denied on April 4th, 2022. He filed a petition for rehearing pro se on April 21st, 2022. On May 4th, 2022, he filed a post-conviction writ WR-51-536-06. That was a second subsequent writ on May 4th, 2022. He's proceeding pro se and appears to make the same challenges to his capital murder conviction as he made in the prior writ. 
He also appears to urge us to reopen his 05 application. They reviewed the subsequent application and found that he failed to satisfy the requirements of 1171-5A. Accordingly, that writ was dismissed as an abuse of the writ without considering the merits and declining to reopen the 05 application, which is on review. Counsel for the next round of efforts, in addition to pro se, was James Riding and Tivon Shardle with the Federal Public Defender's Office. We see her name. We saw her in Melissa Lucio. On July 13, 2022, the Harris County DA filed a proposed execution order and death warrant seeking that Frada's execution be set for January 10, 2023. His counsel filed a signed waiver of appearance at hearing on July 14, 2022. Frada counsel also filed a response in opposition to the proposed order seeking delay of entry of the execution order and death warrant until October 11, 2022, due to his pending writ at the United States Supreme Court and his pending document request to the Harris County DA's office. He also filed a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court in August challenging the TCCA's decision on his writ WR 3153606, the alleged impermissible amendment of jury charge and challenge to the grand jury key man system. There was an order denying rehearing on September 19, 2022 in the hmm. 21-6434 writ application. Then multiple motions were filed on behalf of Frada by his counsel on September 28th and October 6, 2022. Now, there's an execution order, had, a date has been requested in July. There's a hearing scheduled for October 11th. And what are they doing? They're trying to look at evidence, examine physical evidence, have access to physical evidence, examine the ballistic evidence. They want access to the grand jury materials. They want access to jury information. And they want a privilege log of any documents not produced to them by the DA's office. Why are they still doing this at this point? I mean, shouldn't this have been done 20 well, years ago? Yes. This should have been, well, no, this should have been get, done yeah, I, in 2010 or 2011 after the conviction. Yeah, right. Perhaps as part of the direct appeal. It also should have been done certainly during the prior state post-conviction in 2013. And, you know, this is one of those examples Frada was bound and determined to represent himself. He didn't file any of these things. These were filed by new attorneys when the Federal Public Defender's Office came in. You know, so this is where his attempts at self-representation are probably one of the reasons that potentially fruitful challenges to the evidence against him was never challenged right. adequately because it was the world according to Frada and his filings, but he never backed any of his claims up with evidence. You're right. He just, yeah, just kind of threw a bunch of stuff out there. So anyway, but they, an execution order, the order was entered on October 11th, 2022, setting the date for January 10th, 2023. But the court also granted access to the grand jury material, access and examination of physical evidence and additional ballistic examination motions including multiple amended motions related to the ballistic evidence examinations. 
but he denied the request for a privilege log from the DA. So because Frada wanted to know what was being withheld and why it was being withheld. And that was not granted. He filed an application for stay of execution on November 4th, 2022, under docket number 22A486 at the U.S. Supreme Court. They also filed a motion to withdraw execution order on December 21st, 2022. They wanted to allow Frada to raise additional claims of police and prosecutorial misconduct related to forensic hypnosis of one of the key eyewitnesses, Laura Holschler and her husband that might show her original memory of a third man at the crime scene was polluted by unreliable methods, that there was false and unreliable testimony about the identification of the alleged murder weapon, Bakker, and the ballistic evidence, the immunity agreement that DA Dan Rizzo and the Harris County District Attorney gave Mary Gipp in exchange for her testimony against Mr. Frada, and presentation of false evidence from jailhouse informants to the grand jury which oddly indicted Frada as a shooter, not the hirer in a murder-for-hire scheme. Then they filed a subsequent post-conviction application under writ number WR31536-07 on December 15th, which actually should have been above the motion for withdrawal, alleging the trial court failed to instruct the jury to consider Mary Gibb as an accomplice witness as a matter of law or fact, her role in murder is evidenced by statements made to get by Prosecutor Daniel Rizzo for the grand jury that she was suspected of murder. They also allege that the state suppressed evidence about hypnosis, including facts that an, a detective and DA investigator were present for the interview. Hoshler was asked about seeing a red flash in the garage, which she previously described as another man, and information about the hypnotist and method of hypnosis. And, you know, they just made a, some alleged additional facts related to that. They filed a motion for stay of execution on the 15th as well. On the 19th, Frada filed a petition for intervention in a case in Travis County Civil Court seeking declaratory and injunctive relief on behalf of inmates with pending executions due to the alleged expiration of Texas's pentobarbital supply. So this is basically he's a glossop. He's the Texas glossop. Yeah. I mean, we've we've got the murder for hire. We've got the now we're challenging Correct. the death penalty chemicals. I mean, this guy's filing stuff left and right. Correct. Can't remember it. Was glossop pro se too sometimes? No, glossop has actually We've done only, a few well, of them. <laughs> I can't remember one, if he was one of the pro se guys. He filed one pro se uh thing in federal court. In 2015, just prior to Don Knight becoming involved. Okay, gotcha. But that was it. Also, Brada was ordered to show cause regarding his oversized 07 application. And he filed a response to an order to show cause on December 21st, requesting that the court accept the application as filed alleging that the issues were so complex and that editing the application would lead to his attorney not being able to give him proper representation and all all sorts of, you know, reasons why he should be given an exception to the new rule. One of the main reasons they said was, well, we weren't aware that a new law went into effect limiting the size of these applications. And he sought either 
the application being accepted as filed or that he be given a 50,000 word limit for good cause based on all the reasons he alleged. The state filed a reply to this response, which was amusing, and I felt like I wanted to quote the entire response. The applicant complains that counsel on his original state habeas petition were ineffective. This hackneyed claim is part of the applicant's pattern and practice of complicating the work of and then complaining about his legal representation. The applicant lodges no such complaint against himself for his two subsequent pro se petitions that this court dismissed abuses of the writ. The federal district court thoroughly examined the allegation that state habeas counsel were ineffective and properly concluded that the applicant's claim had no merit. This assessment may be of interest to this court as it determines whether there's good cause for the requirements of Texas rules of appellate procedure need not apply. And then quoting the federal court's somewhat lengthy response or finding, State Habeas Council moved for and received additional time to file the state habeas application so as to accomplish more investigation. The request specified that State Habeas Council wished for additional time to review the records and transcripts as well as to investigate extra record claims. State Habeas Council requested and received funds to retain a licensed psychiatrist. State Habeas Council employed the services of two investigators, one a licensed fact investigator and one a dedicated mitigation specialist. State Habeas Council prepared the habeas application against a backdrop of already raised claims. Appellate Council had filed the brief on direct appeal before State Habeas Council submitted the habeas application. Presumably, Appellate Council's selection of issues informed Habeas Council's selection of habeas claims. Also, by that point, Frada had raised several other issues and pro se pleadings before the Court of Criminal Appeals which had not ruled on their procedural viability. State Habeas Council prepared a 57-page state habeas application raising four claims. State Habeas Record at 3-6. Frada himself, however, repeatedly and strongly complained to the state habeas court about his habeas attorney's efforts. The seriousness of his allegations against counsel must be considered in light of the fact that Frada has continually been an obstreperous client at every state of legal proceedings. Frada has repeatedly attempted to raise issues pro se, some of which are included in his current federal petition. Even though appellate counsel raised 32 points of error in the Court of Criminal Appeals, Frada repeatedly claimed about his ineffective and incompetent counsel who refused to file various vital issues. And that's demonstrated in instrument number 61, Exhibit 38. Frada submitted his own supplemental appellate brief to the Court of Criminal Appeals, raising 13 new points of error. Frada wrote a letter to the Court of Criminal Appeals arguing that proof, and that's all caps, of appellate counsel's ineffectiveness is the, all caps, inadequate brief compared with my pro se volume one brief and also my initial pro se supplemental brief. This is, you know, the world according to Frada that his briefs were better than those written by his attorneys. And that's demonstrated instrument number 61, Exhibit 48. Of course, he's, he's a lawyer. Correct. Frada not only criticized his attorneys, but state court judges as well. For example, Frada filed three motions for reconsideration of his direct appeal because the, quote, corrupt judges, unquote, had made so many factual errors that they, quote, looked foolish, end quote. 
Instrument number 61, Exhibit 42. Frada demeaned the judge who presided over his state habeas proceedings as a, quote, pompous, arrogant, racist, black female, man-hating lesbian who in particular hates me. Instrument number 61, Exhibit 43. I got news. I hate Frada too. By, and I'm, <laughs> none of those things, but I hate him. By November 2011, Frada had moved pro se to withdraw the application filed by state habeas counsel and substitute his own. The state habeas court held two hearings regarding Frada's desire to proceed pro se. Finally, on August 22, 2013, the state habeas court granted Frada's motion, dismissed his habeas attorneys, and allowed him to represent himself on state habeas review. Once Frada was granted leave to represent himself, he unsuccessfully requested that he provided, be provided a computer with a printer, two cell phones, and various other materials to set up a working, quote, law office. And that state habeas record at 454-491. Despite his pro se status, Frada never filed a supplemental habeas application. Instead, Frada requested the state habeas court take two actions. First, Frada asked the state habeas court to rule on the issues he raised in his pro se direct appeal pleadings, state habeas record at 429. Second, Frada argued that the state habeas court should ignore the application filed by appointed habeas counsel because it did not amount to a true habeas application. Frada asked the state habeas court to dismiss the state application, appoint new counsel, and allow the filing of a new habeas application, state habeas record at 505. The state habeas court did not grant Frada's two requests. Trial-level habeas court entered findings of fact and conclusions of law recommending that the Court of Criminal Appeals deny the claims raised in the application filed by appointed counsel. And that is from Frada versus Davis, which is the September 18, 2017 memorandum in order. Then on the 22nd, Frada filed an amended response to good cause, to order to show good cause. And basically, he said that counsel was currently editing and revising the application. However, pairing the brief to 37,500 words is likely to result in a compressed version that will be more difficult and time-consuming for the court to review and assess. Frada's case is voluminous, has a complex procedural history, and involves complex facts and legal issues. There are two co-defendants, five trials, and almost three decades of litigation. Frada's retrial that resulted in the current death sentence was 17 days long and included 51 witnesses. The case file at the district attorney's office spans 19 banker's boxes. Another reason Frada requires additional pages is that authorization arguments under 1171 Section 5 are inherently complex. Mr. Frada's application dedicates 32 pages to briefing the authorization arguments of each of his 12 claims. One of the authorization arguments Frada relies on that 1171-5A authorizes review of claims involving legal innocence. This significant issue has been repeatedly raised by other appellants, but has not yet been settled by this court and therefore requires thorough briefing. Indeed, this court recently indicated its interest in resolving this issue by setting briefing on whether legal innocence can satisfy the innocence gateway exception to the subsequent writ bar in non-capital cases under 11.07, Section 4A2, the twin of 11071, Section 5A2. And that's ex parte Victor White. 
Similarly, fraud of subsequent writ argues that authorization is warranted because of prior counsel's ineffectiveness, another issue that requires merits review by this court. Most recently in Ex Parte Ruiz, every judge agreed that state habeas counsel's incompetence provided good cause to revisit Ex Parte Graves, in which court found such claims were not cognizable, finding that the procedural confusion created by counsel's abominable performance may highlight the need to do so. And that's Ex Parte Ruiz, which is 2016. I mean, probably been resolved against Ruiz. This court's resolution of the issue can only benefit from the thorough briefing Mr. Frada's application provides on this complex issue. Also, the Ruiz versus Collier, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, was proceeding in Travis County. And basically what was happening was the inmates were trying to challenge the use of the expired execution drugs in civil court in Travis County rather than in their individual cases or the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the last court of last resort in all criminal cases in Texas. So the Attorney General Paxton filed a writ of mandamus under writ WR 9432-01 on December 22nd, 2022, seeking a writ of mandamus to prohibit the 345th District Court for Travis County from acting on the drug challenge raised by various inmates, including Frada, who had joined by intervention. A motion for temporary injunction was filed in the same action on December 23, 2022, by Frada, seeking an order adjoining his execution with the allegedly expired pentobarbital. Then on December 28, 2022, the case was reassigned from the 345th District Court to the 419th District Court and Judge Catherine Mozzie. I looked but could not quite figure out what prompted it to be reassigned from the 345th District where it was filed by the inmates. I think some fuckery was going on because that was done after the writ of mandamus was filed at the Court of Criminal Appeals. What do you think? I mean, what kind of mess do you think was happening? Well, I think what was happening was that the Paxton had filed to enjoin the 345th District Court from taking any action. So the case was transferred out of 345th and reassigned to 419 because then 419 isn't enjoined and can Mm -hmm. do what it wants. On January 4th, 2023, the Court of Criminal Appeals did grant mandamus, but they stayed proceedings in the 345th District Court, and the case had been reassigned. So Spirit, I think that they mentioned Mozzie in the order, and it remained at the same docket number, too, which was odd. So it was given the same docket number at the 419th District Court. But again, I can only speculate that there was fuckery going on. I can't prove it was fuckery. Right. And it could have been some other legitimate, could have been that it was, it shouldn't have been filed in 345th because that didn't cover the physical geographic location of the Department of Justice or Texas Department of Criminal Justice, which was the entity being sued. So then on the 4th, They also issued an order directing Judge Mozzie to refrain from issuing any order purporting to stay Frada's 
and the other petitioner's execution. So it did mention her. <laughs> and on the 4th, they also denied the stay of execution filed in the 07 writ. Then they issued a corrected opinion on the 5th of January that just reflected a dissent filed solely by Judge Newell, whereas I think the prior opinion said that was joined by another justice who did not actually join. And Newell's dissent was basically that there is, he perceives a catch-22 situation where inmates have the ability to challenge the method of their execution in state court, but they don't have a means of delaying their executions while they mount their challenges, which isn't hmm. really true. I think they could challenge their method of execution in their underlying criminal case. Yeah, right. That's what I thought. They can challenge in civil court, but they have to also seek a stay of execution in the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court, right, or they yeah. can challenge it in the Court of Criminal Appeals. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know, they can challenge it in the Court of Criminal Appeals, which then can remand it yeah. to either Travis County or the original exactly. county conviction. So, again, there's not really a catch-22. It's just presented as a catch-22 in yeah, the Court of Public what... Opinion. Exactly. So, on the 5th, of January, an order was filed basically denying relief on the 07 writ, raising the issues related to the jury instruction, the accomplice status of GIP, the ineffective counsel for count failing to counter the false gun testimony, the alleged withholding of favorable material evidence jurors' exposure to a report about the prior conviction, Frada's prior conviction for the same crime, which is, you know, this is information that they gleaned from the records that they got from the DA. But the writ was ultimately dismissed as an abuse of the writ because, again, all this could have been raised in his first state post-conviction writ after his conviction and might well have been had he not been such an obstreperous client though but you know he tried to represent himself and then he didn't even raise these issues you know represented himself and and didn't know what to raise so he tried to buy more time he filed in the u.s supreme court under 22a 603 an application for stay of execution on january 6th he filed a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court under 22-6476, also on January 6th, challenging the decision on his state writ 07, which uh, basically alleging a Brady violation related to the failure to disclose that witnesses underwent hypnosis prior to his 2009 trial. And actually, that was prior to his first trial. So... The 225785 writ was conferenced by the Supreme Court on the 6th. That was denied on the 9th, as was his stay of execution under 22A486. On the 10th, the judge held a hearing in the 419th District Court in Travis County on the expired drug issue. Frada's U.S. Supreme Court, the 10th was not a good day for Bob Frada overall. His writs were denied and a stay of execution were denied by the U.S. Supreme Court under 226476. 
and 22A6603, he did get a temporary injunction in Ruiz versus TDCJ et al. in Travis County. Uh, he filed a motion to withdraw execution order based on that temporary injunction and the unrebutted evidence presented at the hearing, or allegedly presented at the hearing. However, the AG filed writ WR-9443-02 on the 10th, a writ of mandamus challenging the temporary injunction in Ruiz. The Court of Criminal Appeals issued its opinion, finding that the injunction circumvents this court's mandate and the orders of the inmates convicting court. It is in violation of our order to refrain from issuing any order purporting to stay the executions of the various inmates. As such, they vacated the temporary injunction issued by Judge Mossy. Frada filed a response in the TCCA alleging that it was without jurisdiction to review Judge Mossy's judgment. He also filed a writ of mandamus in the Texas Supreme Court, or rather a motion for leave to file emergency petition for writ of mandamus, emergency petition for writ of prohibition or mandamus, and a motion for injunction to preserve the court's jurisdiction. The Texas Supreme Court denied the writ of prohibition or mandamus and motion for injunction without written order and denied his motion for leave as moot. Frada's execution was attended by one of his sons. They did not identify whether it was Bradley or Daniel. It was attended by Farah's brother, Zane, and it was attended by Houston victims advocate named Andy Kahn, who attended on behalf of Lex Bacher, who had died in 2018. Andy Kahn, a set of victims advocate, and mm-hmm. Lex and Betty became involved in Parents of Murdered Children. Right. And Lex became a very a very staunch victim's advocate. And so Andy, when Lex was in ill health in 2017, 2018, he promised that he would attend Frada's execution when, he's in, yeah, when he was eventually yeah. executed. And he kept that promise. Yeah, it's pretty it's impressive he kept that promise. Five, mm-hmm. five years later? Yeah. Betty did not attend. And Frada declined to make a final statement. Why didn't, does it know why she didn't attend? You know, she is in her 70s. There's um, maybe health. It would have been, Houston is fairly close to Huntsville, but it's probably traveling. And, and it may have been that she just did not want to be. Yeah, there. it's got to be emotionally hard. I mean, I can't um, imagine watching your your former son-in-law who killed your daughter be executed. Mm-hmm. So she she may not have needed that for her closure. Right. Either. Um, It sounds like, you know, at least one of his sons did. His daughter, Amber, did not, even though she had said in 2010. Yeah, she was really outspoken about opposing She was going to be there, but she decided not to be there. And and the other son, again, I don't know whether it was Daniel or Bradley. But I think it says a lot that he didn't say anything. I mean, I think it. Yeah. I mean, I look at I look at these little bitty details. Like, I feel like if you're innocent, you say something. You might say, hey, I'm really sorry for your loss. I love my wife. Yes, we were getting a divorce, but I still cared about her. And I. it's horrible that this happened. You know, you say yeah. something. And he I, I think that he, uh, you know, he should have said something. Even I think that he should have finally said, OK, all right, I've pushed the bounds and i did it and exactly, i'm sorry right. i did it yeah exactly find some peace like clearly 
clear your conscience. And, you know, Daniel Bradley, whoever was there, I'm sorry. I know I ruined your life because I took your mother away from you. Right. And no matter yeah, at least they have some how peace good your life knowing. has been, you didn't have your mother. Right. And, and you know, again, he chose a night when he's at a Catholic fucking church while his oldest son is attending pre-catechism. Well, and that's the problem too, right? Is for them that that night will always be connected in their mind. They right. will, when they think of catechism and they think about Christianity, they will always connect it to their mom's death Correct. or their mom's murder. So he was declared dead at 7.49 p.m. He did have a spiritual advisor present in the room who was able to touch him. And so that was, but I, you know, I don't think his, I don't think his religiosity was, was real. I think it was all a scam. No. To when you say a spiritual advisor, that sounds like somebody you see on Craigslist. Well, I say that I, I, I take that back. It was a, pa- it was a pastor. Oh, well, okay. Of some this, kind. It was very generic. Like, oh, I, it's a spiritual I, advisor. I, I shouldn't have referred to him as a spiritual. He was a no, but I think even no, it wasn't just you though. I mean, I think in the in the press it says spiritual advisor. Yeah, it's very generic because I read it when I was researching the case. It was very generic. Yeah. So, but again, yeah, and he did, should. He sorry if I'm having something. a senior moment. What? Where are the other two guys? They are on death row. Okay, so they're still waiting. Well. And they're going to be the subject of next episode, which we're targeting two weeks. No, we're no, no food poisoning. Good no, thoughts, no food poisoning. No food poisoning. <laughs> I, and I was so aggravated because I had finished my reading that day and was going to get my notes done the next day. And we were supposed to record. And then about 45 minutes to an hour after I ate dinner, I started feeling icky. And then the So for your birthday, just, I'm going to mail you a uh, meat thermometer so you can make sure that chicken's getting cooked. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think what I did, and I've, I've heard this before, I turned the oven off but didn't remove the chicken from the oven. And then it was like a few minutes while I was still getting the other dishes ready. And I think what I should have done was I should have just removed it from the oven and let it rest on the counter. And instead, what does keep it in the oven? What is that? That's I, I'm, I don't know. But when I took it out of the oven, there was liquid underneath and that's not normal. All right. And so it was my mistake when I saw that to not say, hmm, maybe I screwed this up because it was fully cooked. There was not a there was not a hint of pink because the pieces were bigger than I normally use. And so when I took them out of the oven, I cut into the biggest piece and it was completely cooked. But there's something about chicken leaving it in an oven as the oven's cooling that can screw it up it's meant to be taken out of the oven and allowed to rest and cool it cools differently on the counter than it does in a in a cooling oven and i don't understand i don't know but i've two of my bouts of food poisoning that i've had a few times have been the result of improperly reheating or heating things like i started saving portions 
and heating only portions rather than heating an entire pot. Because I once gave myself a serious case of food poisoning with spaghetti sauce that I heated up multiple times in the pot. So, of course, if my ex-husband had been home, we would have finished the spaghetti sauce the second night. (laughs) And we would have both been safe. But he had to go out of town. And so I ended up heating up the spaghetti sauce three times instead of two. After storing it in the pot in the in the fridge. And there probably was a putting it away too soon as well. But yeah, I have and I have a meat thermometer, so <laughs> that will do me no good because I don't need it. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, absolutely. But no, the uh the target is two weeks unless review and notes is gonna take me an extra week since it's two cases. Although they're not they're not as annoying as Frada. Because I don't think either one of them is trying to represent themselves per se. Yeah. Frada seems like I mean a lot of these guys are really annoying, but he's definitely right up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is um that's gonna finish it. Well, thank Unless you for you all your work again. Or- no, I mean it's no, it's just interesting. I mean, as you know, I'm always fascinated by these same big themes that flow through all of these crimes. I mean, this guy, just like Glossop, you know, hires somebody to do it, then files a bunch of legal challenges. At some point, you're just like, you know, you did it. Just find peace mm-hmm. with God and just admit it. Give some peace to your victim and just go on. Yeah. Yeah. All of these, you know, sociopaths are disturbing. So, yeah. And again, you know, world according to Frada, I don't believe for a second that anybody but Frada. And, you know, I didn't talk about it, but he contacted her life insurance and he was angry when he found out that she had changed the beneficiary on her life insurance to her children instead of him. Yeah. And why wouldn't, I mean, why would that make you mad? Like, and, I mean, having kids, if my wife put her life insurance to the children, I'd be like, well, of course, that's who it should go to. Uh-huh. And then he also was angry because uh, and, he, and he accused Lex and Farah of stealing that money from him that he never had any right to. You know, the settlement was never his. And if Texas is anything like Louisiana, if you're married, you d- your husband or your wife does not have a stake. It's not community property. If right. you have a personal injury claim. A personal injury claim is your separate property, always has been, always will be. So he never had a right to it. Exactly. So they can't steal something that was never his. And I think it was it was for Farah, but she put it in trust for the children, for their futures. So, you know, he had no entitlement or right to it. Right. And it, the settlement may have happened after they were separated while they were divorcing. So, again, world according to Frada, he was delusional yeah, he's and stupid. Definitely, yeah, he's definitely in another and, planet. And a sick, sick, sick puppy. Yep. Uh, yep. Absolutely. Um, and he took a a wonderful mother away from her three children yeah and i mean it's interesting i mean it's interesting just to his children's reactions i mean they were all on their mom's side i mean you mm-hmm. could just tell mm-hmm. i mean it makes sense with his personality but i mean they definitely love their mom and i feel like because yeah, a lot of times you see these cases where 
one spouse is accused of killing the other and the kids are like, okay, I'm going to support the other parent. You know, I love right. my other parent. I don't want to, you know, but they're like, nope, he definitely did it. I mean, they definitely did not have that much affection for him. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's call it a night. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks for Episode 3, State of Texas versus Joseph Andrew Prystash, and State of Texas versus Howard Paul Guidry. In Part 2, we'll talk about the cases against Prystash, the middleman in the murder plot, and Guidry, the trigger man. We'll talk about their trials, appeals, Guidry's retrial, and the course of the state and federal post-conviction claims as they each await their own execution date on Texas death row. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Good night. Thank you.